This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically, I am your host, Stephanie Preisner. And ahead of this episode, I just want to give a slight trigger warning. There's nothing too hectic, but we are going to be talking about grief and loss. And so you know yourself better than anyone. If you are in a place today where you just feel you're not able to be listening to something like that, give this one a skip. That's absolutely no problem. We'll be back next week. But if you are sticking around with me in studio to talk about this is Liz Gleason. Liz is a grief psychotherapist. She hosts her own podcast, which is called Shapes of Grief. She's a grief educator. How can someone become educated to work with different people if their grief is going to manifest differently, I suppose? Yeah, and I suppose getting educated, it is the key that rather than coming with my personal experience of grief and expecting everyone else to, you know, share similarities, that I'm going to read the research. I'm going to see, you know, what the giants before me have done. Um, There's certain researchers who have studied hundreds of people over a couple of decades and they can come out with you know, some universal truths, um, like a spectrum of experiences as opposed to facts about grief. So, you know, we know, for example, that some of the research shows us that most people, well, first of all, everybody needs support through grief. Everybody needs friends, community, information. Everybody needs that. Um, And then about 60% of people who are bereaved or grieving will be okay. They will learn to adapt to their loss. They will grieve. They will adapt to their loss. They will assimilate it. They will absorb their grief and they will integrate their grief over a period of time and learn to adjust to their new reality without their loved one. We also know that a certain amount of people, about 30 percent, will need more help. They'll need more than just the usual community supports. They'll need maybe a support group or a trained psychotherapist or a trained counsellor. Um, And then we know from the research that about 10% of people will have a different experience. Their grief won't get absorbed over time. They won't assimilate it. They won't adapt. They'll continue with acute grief. That's, you know, when they're yearning and not functioning and that we expect that, you know, in the early stages of grief. Um, But these people, this 10%, approximately 10 to 20% will develop what's known as prolonged grief disorder, where, you know, over time, over the years, that intense acute grief just doesn't seem to ease. So while everybody's different, we can take a broad perspective as well from the research. And it's really important to to know the spectrum of responses. And so would it be helpful if we talked in this podcast about those three responses, maybe if people find themselves in those categories or what do you think is important for people to know about grief through this episode? Yeah, absolutely. You know, first of all, there's there's this expression that says um, it's OK not to be OK. And that's so valid. And I'd like to say it's also OK to be OK. Which um, I think is really important <laughs> because you can feel very judged yeah, by your grieving process. Absolutely. And, you know, there are so many factors that influence how we grieve. Our attachment style, um, losses that we've experienced in early life, you know, the story we have around the loss, how our person died, what was our relationship to that person, was it expected, was it sudden, and even unexpected death can hit us as if it's a sudden shock as well. I often hear that from people saying, I thought we'd more time. Um, So even if something's anticipated, 
Grief can be really profound, like it can be like an explosion going off in your system that leaves people thinking, am I going mad? I'm doing this wrong. There's something wrong with me. I need I need medication or therapy or something because we don't really fully understand it. But then equally, you know, my dad died last year during the pandemic and I did anticipate it. He had lived a good life. He was 92. I was able to be with him. And I was able to walk away sad, but relatively unscathed. And Mm -hmm. it was really interesting because I remember thinking to myself before he died, I've no idea how I'm going to be. I'm really curious about this. Um, And afterwards, I was able to go, yeah, you know, I was kind of looking for the grief or looking for the grief hijack or am I hiding this? Um, Is it going to hit me in time? And it never came. And equally, that is okay. I was prepared. I'd anticipated his his death. Um, and, And that does not mean that, you know, we're denying something or pushing it forward. Like it also said, doesn't mean that you loved him any less than someone who who was intensely, profoundly shocked by his death. Or yeah, and that's such an important point, Stephanie, because for so many people, they cling to their grief because it's the only connection they have to their lost loved one. And I see people who come to me with this predicament all the time as a grief therapist. They're like, I just, I'm not okay. I can't sleep. I can't eat. It's with me all the time. I can't stop thinking about them. I'm looking at the world through the lens of loss. Um, You know, their whole system is dysregulated. And, you know, maybe we work together for a few weeks or a few months and they say, you know, I had a really nice day on Saturday and it was awful. (laughs) I felt so guilty then that I felt okay. So there's all these paradoxes that are part of the grieving process for many people particularly if the death was unexpected or sudden or for some reason somebody can't accommodate it um, that easily with ease. And for those who, let's say that that, that largest percentage from those studies, what is like, what is, I guess it's difficult because it's going to be difficult for everyone, but I'm just trying to work out like what is typical, how do you know if your grief is becoming something that's moving out of that bigger percentile into something that's more acute and might need more support. Because I think probably for everybody in the first couple of days, well, no, actually, that's not true. But for a lot of people in the first couple of days, things can be really intense. But I know like when I lost my grandmother, um, there were there, you know, there was a large number of people in the family who all lost her at the same time. All of our grief was different and I needed more support around it maybe than other people did. But then I need more support around, like I have mental health, underlying mental health issues and I'm autistic. So integrating things can be a little bit more difficult for me. But how, like, does the listener know if they are experiencing grief, that their grief is something that is typical and will will pass naturally with the support of community and friends or what are the signs that actually maybe you might be needing a little bit more support with this? Mm, really good question and there's several ways of answering that but I would say first and foremost research shows that when people feel they need support and go looking for support they tend to benefit from support. Okay. <laughs> okay so you know if you're if you have a burning question do I need help with this you know maybe you do you know 
Um, most people don't. So if it's somebody else that's saying you need to go and get counselling, you know, you don't necessarily have to listen to that because okay. um, that could be just that person who can't bear you. your grief. Um, I've heard people say this at funerals, you know. Grief lasts so much longer. Like when you love someone deeply, it's so much more than a few days or a few weeks or a few months. You know, often, and I'm talking about, you know, people who are really, truly rocked by the loss of someone they love. Often the first year is just about surviving, getting through, you know, picking up somebody's death certificate, the anniversary of this time last week and then this time last month. Um, this time last year, people think about that. So they're reliving the last year often. Um, getting through Valentine's Day or a, or a birthday, um, all these firsts. For someone who's experiencing acute grief, it can be just getting through that year. And then sometimes year two comes and it's like you've survived that. Your body is just starting to settle. All those stress hormones are starting to just recalibrate. And often that's when actually the really profound sadness comes in year two. Okay. Um, so when people haven't been through this, it's really hard to understand that. Um, how do you know when you need help? I guess in in the beginning of loss, the grief, like I mentioned, is acute. It's like the volume is up on everything. Um, it's screaming in your ear and it's ever present in everything. Every song reminds you of them. Every conversation is about them. You're, there's no part of you available to anything else in your life. Now, if you're a bereaved parent, for example, that's going to go on for quite a bit longer than a year, probably, hopefully with moments of reprieve in there. But the, the, the key is if the volume of that grief remains really high over a prolonged period of time, and time is so arbitrary. For some, it might be six months, 12 months, 18 months. Um, if it's staying up there, if it's, if it's still screaming at you, you're still not sleeping, you're not really able to work or get on with life, um, there's probably support available or support needed for you. Um, but it's really important to find somebody who's grief informed. I can't stress that enough. And um, what does that grief informed what is grief informed? Like, how would that be different from someone who isn't? What is the knowledge? Like, what is grief? Yeah, absolutely. So there's so many theories and everybody listening today will have heard of the stages of grief. There are no stages of grief. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross yes, yeah. wrote the stages of grief. When you were given a terminal diagnosis, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross recognised that people who were dying went through these stages um, bargaining, acceptance, denial, whatever they are, I'm not uh -huh. sure. And she recognised this from her work in palliative care. And at some stage, they were kind of put onto grief, you know, or maybe grief is stages. Um, there's been phases of grief. There's been stages of grief. There's been all sorts of theories put onto grief. The ones we know about today are attachment is really important. So that's the work of John Bowlby and Colin Murray Parks. How we attach to our early caregivers is a real um, primer for how we will grieve in later life. And actually, those of us with secure attachments will have a better um, outcome from grief than those of us with insecure attachments. We know that it's old research and it's still very relevant. How does the grief look different if you have an insecure attachment? So if you have an insecure attachment, um, it's more difficult for you to lose somebody. Okay. 
you know, those overwhelming feelings of abandonment um, can be really triggered, you know, if there's an insecure attachment. Um, we know that there are certain tasks of grief. Uh, that's the work of William Warden. But he would say that not everybody goes through these tasks and they're not in any particular order. But if I can remember them, they are, you know, accepting the reality of the death. Like you'll often hear somebody four, six, eight months after a bereavement. I just can't believe she's gone. I just mm -hmm. can't believe they're not here. It feels surreal. So that's the work of accepting the reality of the loss. And, you know, this is why it's so important for bereaved people to be able to tell their story again and again. And even for those around supporting, you might be like, you know, rolling your eyes going, God, I've heard this three times this week. Yeah. But to understand this is how they are just trying to Integrate accept the reality accept. of their loss, you know. Um, all of our traditions, actually, you know, the funeral, you know, lots of us have been deprived of that over the last year and a half. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what's the the outcome of losing our rituals through the COVID pandemic. Um, what are the other tasks of grief? Yeah, so accepting the reality of the loss and mourning the loss, like actually then leaning into our grief, feeling the sorrow, letting our bodies wail. Um, just allowing that to to come through us, Stephanie, like a lot of us think, you know, some of the platitudes we say to people are so wrong, like stay strong. Yeah. You've an angel in heaven now and um, they wouldn't want you to be sad. Like I hate it's, those. they're just so harmful, <sighs> so unhelpful. Yeah, they're so harmful and they just isolate the griever so much more like we as if we're supporting someone who's grieving. We need to be able to rock in there and go, this sucks. I'm so sorry. You're safe with me or your grief is safe with me. Not even saying that, but just demonstrating that by being able to bear witness to someone's searing pain at times. Um, just listening, listening more than speaking, maybe offering a hand on the back um, not trying to get rid of the tears sitting with the tears and the snot like I often say to clients you know and they come they're like I'm trying to keep it together and I say oh, please don't yeah. <laughs> please don't this is like if you need to pee and you go I'm not going to pee and you keep it in it's like it gets toxic and you get a UTI and it's really yeah. uncomfortable grief is the same we have to normalize grief we we have to stop being so scared of it you know grief is not a negative emotion Grief is a totally normal, adaptive human response to loss. And we have to let each other grieve. Um, we have to acknowledge our losses and allow ourselves to grieve. One of my least favourite things about society is the sort of hierarchy of grief that people place on it. So like if your mother dies, it's like society will allow you X number of weeks to mourn like publicly they'll tolerate your snot and your tears for a while and then it's like oh my god could you please just get back to the office if it's your sister it's another if it's your grandmother it's even less if it's your friend really are you going to be back after lunch you know it's this sort of hierarchy of grief which really is based on an underlying assumption that like certain people are going to be closer to you than others and it was something that I found really tricky when actually a friend of mine died that like even you know in the funeral I wasn't, I was just like in with the masses when I felt like actually like I was in with people who haven't seen that person in, you know, 30 years and the profound grief I was experiencing. Now, I do like labels and I like to feel like I'm 
I know exactly where I am and I'm in the right place. And when things are not clear, um, I can get quite distressed. But that sort of feeling like society has an expectation on your grief can be really, really toxic. You know, it's it's one of the biggest hurdles that people need to overcome is what other people think or how should I do this? How does society want me to grieve? It's not about the label, the title, you know, grandmother, neighbor, friend. It's about the attachment you have with them. And for some people, that's with their dog. You know, for some people, their dog is their companion, their constant, their solace, their walking buddy, their running buddy, their home, you know, their and people can experience profound loss when a pet dies. And we don't acknowledge that half enough. You know, who gets a card or a meal from the neighbours if your dog dies? Yet I've seen people thrown into existential crisis losing a pet. Equally, we can lose a parent, as I did last year, and be okay. like it is a profound loss and I'm okay. But there's there's losses, we call them ambiguous losses that are around us all the time. And that's why I call my podcast Shapes of Grief. You know, it's not bereavement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's shapes of grief. Um, We can feel loss profoundly and acutely after mastectomy. We can feel profound loss after a hysterectomy. We can feel profound loss if our neighbor dies. Mm -hmm. Like whoever talks about neighbor grief, but yet this could be the person that you see every single day and spend all your time with over the garden wall or in and out of each other, uh, each other's home. So, you know, there's there's a lot more talk about grief nowadays in social media. And I really hope that people are starting to open their minds and not so much go their mother died, therefore, but they've had a loss. What does this mean to them? Do you think that it's another shape of grief if someone loses a partner and they're not dead, but like after a breakup, like that can be a really profound, immediate loss where I remember once being broken up with and thinking I wish they were dead not because I wished harm on them but because I felt like at least then these feelings I had would be valid but now it just felt like oh my god like you've just been broken up with everyone gets broken up with get over it but I was like I just wish something terrible had happened so that these feelings would be valid a hundred percent a hundred percent like separate like breakup separation divorce which I've also been through um, are horrific losses and they're ambiguous losses they're not because there isn't a funeral hearse Mm -hmm. um, to quote Pauline Boss there Dr Pauline Boss not every loss has a hearse and some of the most profound losses don't have a hearse Um, her work is on ambiguous loss this is where someone's still alive but there's a profound loss and it could be they've broken up with you. It could be they've got dementia. <laughs> it could oh, be yeah. they found another best friend. Um, ambiguous loss is around us all the time and breaking up from relationships is profound. That, you know, the person who's been your person at your side um, regulating you physically, you know, you're lying in bed with somebody. We regulate each other on a biological level, not just a, an emotional level. They're the person you text when things go pear-shaped. You break up, they're not there anymore and you can't text them to go, everything's just gone pear-shaped. Yeah, it's a profound loss and and often ambiguous. Do those ambiguous losses have the same tasks of grief that that death losses have? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And sorry, at the start when you said that different people go through different griefs and will 
regulate themselves out of it or will need some support or just won't integrate it at all. Is that the same with with ambiguous losses? Whatever your loss trigger is, whether it be a bereavement, an ambiguous loss, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, there's a whole spectrum of responses. I'm not saying that the depth and breadth of the loss experience is the same, but... Um, yeah, I guess it depends on how you've processed loss again in the past. If you've had a few breakups, um, the chances are you probably will know the territory and be, you know, a little bit more prepared or know what you need to do to not slip on the banana skins. OK, I'm not going to buy Marlboro Lights yeah. or drink a bottle of wine and watch 10 hours of Netflix, although there is absolutely a place and a time for all of those three things sometimes. But I'm just not going to stay there. You know, I think I think what's really important, Stephanie, is we learn to draw on what we've learned from in the past feel grief, just maybe don't marry it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, here's another loss. I'm going to feel it, the emotion of it, but I'm also going to restore, you know. So this is one of the the models we work with in grief theory, the dual process model. They say a good grief is to face your grief, allow it to rock through you, um, you know, be hijacked by it, if you like, you know, let the tears come, let the wailing come, whatever that grief is for you talking about it constantly and then to oscillate more towards restoration. Okay, I'm going to make myself some dinner. I'm going to go out for a walk with a friend. I'm going to do some journaling or listening to music. Um, We need to dose our grief. Just like, you know, you wouldn't drink a bottle of Benelin if you had a cough. Same with grief. It's really important, you know, face it, let it move through you, but then take a break from it, you know, in and out. And what if you're feeling like, you can't escape it. Is that when you're feeling, is that when you might need some help? If it's like, I'm trying to cook dinner and meet friends, but I can't, I cannot do anything. Yeah, good question. I think, I think definitely in the early days, weeks, months, we are in grief mode most of the time with little glimpses of restoration happening. Um, but as time goes on, we'd like to see more restoration happening, you know, more relief from the grief. Um, more ability to choose when we oscillate in and out out of it. Sometimes we can't choose that at the beginning. Um, And if that's not happening, yeah, maybe we... Something that's really important in grief is psychoeducation. I'm all about empowering whoever I'm talking to or working with for them to learn what's going on in their body, in their Uh system, in their heart, in their mind, in their soul. So it's not just me sort of with all this knowledge and wisdom trying to help you through. It's like, let me share these tools with you so that you can find your way out of this and I'll accompany you. So it's the education, like understanding. I'm not going crazy. Understanding what's happening in your body, how to regulate yourself. Um, you know, just being able to lean into your grief. Sometimes people actually need permission to grieve because they're listening to society's messages of stay strong, no bereavement leave, will you be back to work next week? And therefore, when they're lying on the floor in a pool of snot and tears and they're not fitting into all of that, Mm -hmm. they think there's something wrong with me. So sometimes it's just for someone to say, no, what you're experiencing is totally normal. You know, you can't be expected to be any other way. This is a really good, this is a a, a normal response to what has happened. so normalizing grief um, maybe it's a little bit of stepping stones, you know, showing them you're not going to believe me yet, but 
you will be okay, offering a bit of hope. Sometimes profound loss can feel utterly hopeless, especially if it's tragic or sudden. Um, people who are left behind can feel just absolutely hopeless. And, you know, it's to sit with that hopelessness without throwing platitudes at it, but also offer little glimmers of hope. And, you know, I remember meeting a bereaved mum once and it was two years since I'd seen her. And I said to her, how are you doing now? How are things now? And she thought about it for a minute. And then she said, it's like there's little bubbles of life coming back into my heart. Mm-hmm. And I would often share that story with people. You will feel the bubbles of life eventually. For now, you've just got to trust me, you know. Taking a break from the episode to bring you an ad because this podcast is only possible because of our sponsor. Supporting our sponsor supports the podcast. And let me tell you about who they are. Rockwell's financial planning service is designed for anyone who feels as if they kind of need to just put a shape on their finances. I don't know if you're like me, you kind of feel like, oh, my finances are all over the place. I need to kind of start adulting. This is the service for you. Whether you're like a senior executive in a multinational company or a small business owner or just a young couple looking to get a head start in your financial planning, a single person who wants to make plans for their future, So they consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners, which I really like because it's active. It's not just like um, namby-pamby sort of making a plan. doesn't matter where you are in the country. They're happy to help you in person or over Zoom. Pensions and investments are really important, but they're absolutely useless without knowing why you're using them and what you're using them for. They are in the outcomes business. They are in the business of results. So it's not just about the plan, it's about the action. So they use this like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for you listening right now, for Basically listeners. If you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically, you can book a complimentary financial planning session today. You'll get a cash flow model which outlines any gaps in your finances and they'll give you the first steps to achieving your specific goals. I highly recommend Rockwell and I think as a Basically listener, you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's going to put you on the right path to getting your finances in order. That's it. Go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for five euro plus that. Uh, or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. 
I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. I want to take a break to tell you about another podcast on our network that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Fireside and it's presented by Kevin Olihan. The episodes drop every Wednesday very consistently, which I appreciate. And the podcast is about stories of folklore or myth. And Kevin tells them as though they are being told as they were meant to be told by the fireside. Um, I really like that he tells the story but also then kind of goes into the history, the origins and the culture behind the story. So you get a little bit of a of a background as to like where these things originated from. Check it out. Let me know what you think of it. It's called Fireside. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. I think for people as well who haven't experienced grief, there is a f- like there's a sort of a societal mis- myth, I suppose, that like you'll get over it, you know, that like event- it's really awful now, but like you will be OK and this will get better. But actually, it's more like the bubbles will come back like it's never going to go away. You are sort of changed forever. Everything has changed, but you can still be OK in that. You will... You know, it's like, you know, you just sort of grow around the grief, you know, like you don't go back to yourself. You just kind of yourself comes back through the veil of grief, but the veil will kind of still be there. That's 100% correct, you know, particularly for people who have experienced a profound loss. Um, It's like everything, the ground is different. The air is different. Everything you see is different and everything comes up for renegotiation. You know, there's primary losses and then there's secondary losses. So what's the difference? So you have, you know, let's I'll, I'll use me as an example. Your your my father dies. OK, um, no, but that's probably a bad example, but I'll use it anyway. My father dies. I have the loss of him. But then secondary losses might be. And this isn't the case for me, but for many people, it is the friends who didn't show up. Okay. The people you thought would rock up and be there at your side. And it's like, where are you? And this happens everyone who is grieving. I hear this over and over again. People are disappointed with people they thought would be there and completely touched, moved and beyond grateful for the kindness of often strangers or people who weren't close friends before the loss yeah. and rock up and just get it and know what to do. Um so often there's a real shift in your what's going on socially for you. Another secondary loss is maybe spiritual loss, like 
you know, do I believe in God anymore if my child has died? You know, what God would do that to me? So people with a religious faith might question their faith, might lose their faith. That's a massive secondary loss for a lot of people. There could be financial loss. This person supported me. Um, Some people have to sell their house in the wake of a bereavement. Um, Maybe their job, like everything, it's like, Everything comes up for renegotiation. We really go, well, what does life mean now? Life is short. Have I been living life the way I want to? How do I want to live out the rest of my years? Mm -hmm. Because now I know it's not a given that I'll be around for a long time um, and that there is an end in sight for all of us. So I think these are all the things that can be really scary. Um, they can be, like I said, secondary losses, existential crisis. But a lot of these things, it's nice to process them in the arms of someone, the the metaphorical arms of yes. someone who's kind and compassionate and gets it and maybe doesn't have all the answers to all of these questions, but will accompany you as you search and make it a little less lonely, you know. So for people who are listening like what I'm hearing is that grief is very typical and whatever way your grief is playing out is probably not abnormal. And if it's getting to a point where it's getting very intrusive and you can't escape from it when you want to, that's the point at which you might need to get some help. But getting help should be from someone who's trained in grief because there are specific methodologies that can help you process that, that not everybody is trained in. Um, And it doesn't have to be just a death that can cause grief. I think actually a lot of people in the pandemic experienced grief. It was a very sudden, like, revoking of security, of jobs, of all the things that we trusted. And there's a grief in that, surely, like a sort of a mass grief. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like I was just thinking the other day how important our third level counsellors are at the moment because so many young students, like so many of us, you know, we grow up in maybe not ideal households or there's developmental trauma or we've missed out and stuff. And, and, you know, we, we gather our stuff, we form our attachments all in these early years and then we move out of home. Um, Either we go abroad or we go to college to study or we go and get a job and move out of home. And often that's the time where we begin to process our childhood or growing up with an alcoholic parent or whatever it is that we've been through. Um, And for some people, they've had lovely, secure homes as well. I'm not saying it's always the case, but, you know, those who've had a bit of a rocky start, it's a third level often that they'll process that. And. and some of them haven't made it there. They've done third level from their bedroom, yes, you know, course, while yeah. parents are downstairs having lost their jobs or not able to pay the mortgage or parents are fighting because of the pressure or there's been drink or drugs or something in the family. So, you know, that's just one example of, um, you know, the importance of third level counsellors of really understanding loss from different lenses. You know, these are disenfranchised grief. You know, there's ambiguous loss where, you know, the, the work of Pauline Boss that I quoted earlier, where maybe somebody is physically present, but psychologically absent, possibly because of dementia or alcoholism or drug addiction or other illness, for example. 
Um, but then there's also disenfranchised grief, which can be a profound grief that society doesn't recognise. Miscarriage, for example, or pet loss or in the past, same sex relationships, you know, weren't acknowledged in society. So there's still a lot of disenfranchised grief. You know, you named it there. Oh, but they were just your friend. Yeah. You know, if you listen to the of the first episode, actually, of Shapes of Grief, it is with Jack Gleason, whose best friend died. They were best friends for 40 years. You know, they did everything together. They were the consistent duo when relationships came and went. Mm-hmm. Parents came and went. You know, they they were living in each other's pockets. And Jack, his friend, died um, suddenly and tragically. And Jack describes trying to find his place in the mourners. Like he got up the next day and went to work and he sort of froze in the car and realized, I can't, I'm not able. And, you know, what's my place at the funeral? And luckily his friend's parents recognized or his friend's family recognized his place and pulled him in. But like you were describing there earlier, you know, about losing your friend, um, you know, this could be someone you spend hours every day with, but yet you're not a chief mourner. Yeah, which That's can a be real, really difficult. A real disenfranchised loss, a disenfranchised grief. And so do those things need to be dealt with any differently? We need to understand them. Like as a grief, as a, as a psychotherapist or a counsellor working with someone who's grieving, we need to be able to identify these and name them so that the griever can go, God, yeah, that's what I'm going through, you know, um, because often there's so much there that's not being named. And, and kindness and compassion is really important. Sometimes it's enough and sometimes it's not enough. So I think as a a good psychotherapist working with the bereaved, we need to have all the tools on the shelf. It doesn't mean we're going to use them all the time, but we need to know about the theories like continuing bonds is another grief theory. Um, Freud in back in 1915, I think it was, he wrote Mourning and Melancholia and he said, you know, the work of he was the first person to, to write about grief. And he said, the work of the griever is to grieve their loved one and then move on and find another attachment object to attach to. Okay? OK, and he wrote this and it went all over the world. And that's why we say you've got to move, move on. on. Yeah. Hundred years later, we're still saying that. Right. But then his daughter died. His daughter died, you know, I think it was about 15 years after that. And he went, oh, God, like the wrong. last thing I want to do is move on. And um, her name was Sophie. And he said, I want her in my heart. I want her always here close to me. Um, But unfortunately, he just wrote that to friends and letters, (laughs) not to the mass public. So we still have so many misconceptions about grief. But the work of class Nickman and Silverman um, is continuing bonds. You know, um, that movie Tuesdays with Mari, death ends a life, not a relationship. So they're gone. But my relationship to them isn't gone. How do I relate to them now? How do I mother a child who is dead? You know, do Mm -hmm. I still buy them Christmas presents? Do I still think of them when I go walking and see a daffodil? You know, and this is how we need to adjust to life without them, but yet still find a way to be with them. And for most people, after a profound loss, a continuing bond is really important. Like I know when dad died, we'd been looking at his um, his bird houses outside the window 
uh, the whole time that he was dying and actually in his life as well he loved the birds one of the first things I did was I went out and I bought three bird feeders and I hung them right up outside my window where my office is so you can see them think of him I see them I think of him that's my bond you know one of my bonds he had a great sense of humor and he was super kind so I remember as he was dying I was sitting beside him going okay I'm breathing in the kindness I'm breathing in the fun you know give me these qualities I want these in abundance that's how I'm going to carry you forward you Mm -hmm. know these lovely parts of him and I think for a lot of bereaved people it's really hard to find that in the first few months but you know it's part of the these tasks of grief or the work of grief is finding our story our narrative around what's happened finding the meaning of it it's not so much what has happened like the story doesn't matter what matters is the meaning I make of it yeah I remember people asking me about because a lot of people knew my nana from Instagram when she died and asking me like what had happened and knowing that I had to be really careful because however I started to describe it would become the story like the words the the way we describe things the language we use really matters and pr- for me like that sticks yeah. if I say something in a certain way that's how I'll start to tell it and then that becomes the story and so I've held back describing it in any way because I don't want to put a narrative on it like w- during the days after she died I wrote down like l- literally the sort of operations of what had happened and who was where and what who said what but making meaning of something is a much bigger work that's not just daily journaling of the tasks that are happening, you know, like trying to make meaning of someone's death is sort of making meaning of their life. And that's a very big task and not something that you're just going to do on an Instagram story, you know. Absolutely. And it, and it takes time as well. And not everybody gets there. Like some people will say there's just no meaning in my beloved partner dying at age 53. I, I just can't find it. And maybe that will remain the case and maybe it won't, you know, but for everyone it's different. But, you know, it's I think with these profound losses, Stephanie, it really calls us like everything comes up for renegotiation. It's like mm-hmm. these critical moments. We, we hear the term post-traumatic growth. What am I going to do with this? You know, I've no control over what has just happened. I am devastated inside and out. What am I going to what meaning am I going to make of this does become a choice when we're aware of it. You know, sometimes for the griever, we think we've no choice. We're just consumed and and language is often really unavailable. Like everyone who describes loss to me, they're speaking in metaphors and symbols. You know, it's like, you know, I interviewed Dr. Kira Kelly and she describes it like a truckload of grief landing on me. Someone else describes it like a tsunami. Someone else describes it like I'm just in this wave and I can't come up for air. Like, you know, rarely can people just describe it with the ordinary English language, you know. Um, And it's so somatic, like it's so physical. Grief really resides in our bodies. Um, You asked me earlier, how do we know when our grief might be? And, you know, how do we know when we might be in trouble with our grief or we might be stuck? And I think it's very much a physical thing as well. One woman described it to me and she said, it's like I have this hot press and it's full of towels and sheets and it's full to the brim. There's no space and everyone keeps throwing towels and sheets at me to put into the hot press and I've no space. I can't do it. 
and we worked together doing prolonged grief therapy. Um, this was 10 years after her father had died and you know, when her father died, everything changed. She was stuck on the sofa. She had no hope. She would no narrative. She wasn't able to re-engage with life. She, in her own words, she says she was just existing. Mm-hmm. And we worked together doing prolonged grief therapy. She felt nothing would help her. She said, if you can't bring back my father, then it's not going to work because that's the only thing that's going to make me okay. But she engaged in this program um, and, we, and we did it. And, you know, how she described her grief at the end then was, it's like the hot press is only half full now. And if someone throws a towel at me, I have space for it. I can manage it. I can assimilate it and integrate it. And I have space for, you know, she did a yoga training, a yoga teacher training and started to re-engage with her husband again, enjoyed going out of the house again. So that's an example. If you feel like you're just full to the brim and you've no space for anything, there's a chance that you're overcome with your grief and it may be stuck. And what prolonged grief therapy does doesn't take away your grief. It just gets it back on track, just normalizes it again so that you can begin to face it and integrate it. And like you said, grow around it. And you know, that's the, the lovely work of Lewis Tonkin um, growing around grief. We used to think that grief, um, if you can imagine a, a jam jar with a squishy ball in it that fills mm-hmm. it to the brim, we used to think that grief was just consumes us and it's really big. And at the beginning, we're full of it. But then over time, that ball will shrink. And if we're the jar and the ball is shrinking, we get more space in our jar until it's just like a little marble in the corner of the jar and we've room to breathe again. But people working with the bereaved realize that actually is not what's happening. It's not like a virus. It doesn't shrink and go away with time. What happens is we need to grow and stretch to accommodate our grief. You know, um, we need to. It's like going off and doing the Camino de Santiago. You walk 20K, you're in bits, your rucksack's too heavy. But as you keep going, your muscles strengthen. The bag, you know, gets more manageable and you grow to be able to walk 20K every day. And it's the same with grief. We have to find ways to stretch and grow. Um, So to anyone listening, move, cry, bring in community, even though you might want to isolate, bring in people. And, you know, it will be okay again someday. And if it isn't, find help. You don't have to stay grief struck and forever. Liz Gleeson, thank you so much. If people want more from you or they want to find you, where can they? I know that you have the Shapes of Grief podcast, which they can find wherever they get podcasts. Are you on Instagram? Do you have an email or a website? Yeah, all of the above. Shapes of Grief on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And for anyone listening who might be a mental health professional and would like to become more grief informed or grief trained, check out shapesofgrief.com. I have a beautiful training there. I've brought together experts from all around the globe to um, say much better in their own words some of what I've been talking about today. And it's a really good comprehensive grief training available for anyone who wants to take it. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to another episode of Basically. We'll put all of Liz's um, contact details in the show notes. Um, But for another week, we will say goodbye. Our producer on this week's episode was Julie Hassett. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara. And we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. 
a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.